welcome back to What the HR Podcast. I'm Jesse Novi, an HR business partner with CH Robinson. And I'm Mike Toole, HR technology consultant with SAP SuccessFactors. In today's episode, we are joined by Nikki Broderick, an HR consultant at Salo. She has over 20 years of experience in U.S. and international HR. In her role, she brings deep subject matter expertise and best practices to help clients with their HR technology needs, including vendor selection, business process redesign, implementation support, change in project management, service delivery planning, and communication and training. She holds a master's in human resources and industrial relations from the University of Minnesota and has held the SPHR certification since 2012. As always, if you are enjoying this podcast, please take 30 seconds, leave a review. We greatly appreciate it. Enjoy the episode. All right, Nikki, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks. Happy to be here today, Mike. Absolutely. Well, hey, easy way of getting started. Tell everybody a little bit about you, your background, and you know what you're currently up to. Sure thing. Uh, I am a local consultant here. Based out of the Twin Cities, I work for our firm, Salo, uh, who specializes in HR, finance, and accounting, consulting with senior professionals in the market. Um, I came to Salo after uh, spending a lot of time embedded within the business. I spent about 12 years in HR at Best Buy and another four years in a global operations role at St. Jude Medical. So I have a lot of experience in different functional areas as well as the IT space. And joined Salo almost five years ago to help build their HR technology practice, focusing on the different technology needs that some of our local clients have around selecting vendors for their technology solutions, for uh, assessing their current stack, for helping them optimize and implement those solutions, or even to be a part of an RFP process. So kind of a different variety of projects on any given basis, but usually focused around the people, process, and technology aspects of HR. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm obviously excited for this one because the HR technology is my world. And it's it's one that has changed so much and continues to change is it easy way of starting? I'd love to get your your feedback on if a company is is considering change, you know, when you guys go in and speak with them, talk a little bit about whether or not they should optimize what they have and fix it, or if they should look for something new. Uh, I say every situation, it kind of like a true HR professional. It depends. Um, it starts by building the relationship with that client and understand understanding what's the business challenge that they're trying to solve for and then doing some root cause analysis. So that root cause could be a number of different things, anything from they might have the wrong people enrolled or those people may not have done any training or the effective training to support what they've got in place. It could be that their processes are broken and they've tried to put broken processes into existing technology into existing technology without making changes. Or it could be that the technology is not configured to meet their needs of the business today. So there's a lot of different ways to assess um, from looking at service tickets and configuration setup to process reviews um, before you actually get to the point of deciding, does it make sense to switch technology? 
So I think I'd love to peel away the layer of that onion a bit and maybe even take a step back and talk about from your perspective, how do companies prepare to make a decision about what they need to fix or what might be broken or what they want to add? And then I'd also be curious, it's kind of a two-pronged question, as business leaders are making this decision, who do you feel like should be involved? Um, specifically on the HR team, but also if you believe business stakeholders should be involved, who do you think should be at that table? Sure. Um, I think one of the really important things in making this kind of decision, actually, I'm going to start with the second part of your question, Jess, and say that talking to your key stakeholders outside of HR should definitely be a part of that process. So um, engaging with your IT organization, your finance team, and any of the key areas of your business, perhaps they're consumers of your services, they might be your squeaky wheels, or they might have unique needs in your business. I'd say talking to them first, I call it the voice of customer interviews, is one of the most critical aspects of making that determination. Quite frankly, it also helps build out your change management strategy early um, so that you are getting their engagement and participation early on and and potentially their support for a change in the future. So that's that answered the second part of your question is like the who should be there. Uh, the, the, the next part around doing that assessment involves a couple of different things. Um, I like to usually start with some sort of workshop with all of those key stakeholders, engage them in understanding what does their business need? What does it need in the future? What are their pain points? And what are their current processes? If time allows, also digging in and doing some detailed process mapping and identifying challenges is another thing that's usually really helpful to do. Again, those voice of customer interviews, reviewing service tickets, looking for the patterns and trends and themes that have come up, and also then looking at the current configurations to understand, you know, are any of the things configured in the system in a way that is actually causing those pain point pain points that you heard about in those interviews and workshops. Okay, that's helpful. And then even so I think the angle that we kind of took at the beginning of the episode would be for a company that probably already has some established technology in place and is looking to maybe add or add widgets, remove add add entirely new for example, but if we have a listener that's maybe a part of a startup you know, they've got 50 to 100 employees. They're leading up the HR initiative there. And they're like, gosh, you know, my budget is really small at this point, And I really need to be specific about what it is I should invest in at this stage of the company's life cycle, if you will. What recommendations would you give to somebody listening who's trying to make a decision at this point on where to invest their money from a techno- HRIS technology perspective? Sure. I, I would make sure that I'm looking at what are the most critical challenges that my business is going to need to address and getting that input from across the business. So if we're trying to grow and we are from 100 employees to 200 employees in the next year. 
obviously recruiting is going to be a, a really important functionality that I need to be able to handle really well and smoothly and easily to make sure that I'm selecting something that's going to support my business business growth. I mean, managing Excel spreadsheets for candidate applications uh, is not going to serve you well if you're trying to grow that fast. So, you know, working with the business leaders to understand what are the, the most important areas for the for the organization. If you're a hundred person employer and it's really important that sales and service and customer experience and relationship is important and uh, that your employees know the products inside and out. And that means training is, is important. I'd say that I would look at, you know, learning management functionality. So it's really about understanding first what the business is going to need, then figuring out where your gaps are, and then looking at what are the things that could close those gaps. Did I answer your question, Jess? Yes, it sure did. That's perfect. And I'm not surprised that you went with TA first or an ATS <laughs> first. You know, when you're looking to scale a scale an organization, um, typically your recruiting initiatives are the things that the thing that keeps you up at night. Absolutely. And if you know, we've noticed anything out of coming out of the pandemic is that employers are increasingly having trouble keeping their businesses staffed and getting staffed up to where they're growing in the future. You know, our businesses are grounded in people where, you know, we're not organizations without people first and having the right people for the future is important. And it's becoming more and more evident as we start to round the corner of the pandemic. Mm -hmm. You mentioned bringing in key stakeholders. And I ask this question a lot when I'm talking to clients. It seems like HR technology decisions are being driven by HR, you know, maybe a little bit of finance sometimes, but employees oftentimes get left out. The actual end users that are using this all the time. Mm-hmm. And you know, that people normally say, well, we have kind of a process owner and they get it, they understand it, but you know, not to the level of detail that I think is needed. I have I often hear People say that, well, our employees love it, but administratively we can't, we just, it's a nightmare and then they change. So I'm curious on your opinion on what, obviously both are important, but how much credence do companies put on the employee experience and how much should they? Yeah, I, I'd say that it's a mixed bag in the organ in the organizations that I work with, whether it's an employee-centered approach or an administrator-centered approach to making a selection decision. And one of the first things that I try to encourage my business leaders to do is consider the employee experience because the technology you select is going to impact every single one of your employees in some way, shape, or form throughout the year. And it's important that the employee is at the center of that decision-making. You know, I've had some business leaders that say, oh, well, we can speak on behalf of the employees because we talk to them every day. That may be true. However, they can't necessarily truly represent the employee voice without the employee speaking up for themselves. HR professionals, in my, my experience, have had a tendency to protect the HR role and say that employees don't want the change or employees don't need the technology because the HR team is actually afraid of how their role is going to change if the forms go away, if those processes have to change, rather than thinking collaboratively about how 
everybody's work life can be improved with some process changes. Right. Well, and I think that goes along with kind of moving HR out of the tactical into the more strategic initiatives that they have. And what you're saying is they're worried that some of that administrative work that they do is removed and somehow they're not as valuable to the organization. Yeah, I think that that's what's at the heart of it. And I think when you get in there and you talk to HR people more and more, you can actually give them an opportunity to see how their value can change in the organization. If you can inspire them to what could be, you know, what would change for you as an HR professional if this tactical work went away? What are the things that you're not getting to today because you're busy doing some of this block and tackle type of activity? Yeah. And that's a top-down thing, I would imagine. If they're feeling that way, it's probably because at some level of the organization, they feel like that's what's expected of them. So I would imagine that, <clears throat> excuse me, if if from a leadership perspective, they want them focusing on more you know, people initiatives and strategic things that they wouldn't be as concerned with getting rid of that those tactical things. Right. I think in places where I see the leadership teams talking about transformation, those are the places where I see more of the employee, employee voice represented in the decision-making process. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, we're all human. We all make decisions based off of biases we may have and selecting HR technology is no different. Do people bring in a consultant like you, you know, strictly to remove maybe some of those preconceived ideas that they have? I certainly don't know all the reasons why they bring in consultants. But what I can say is where some businesses have reached out to people like me to support them in their selection decision is when they don't have the experience on the team that have done this before. Most people in HR and payroll don't select technology on a day-to-day basis. And the technology environment changes so fast. I can think just today, I got about six different updates from different vendors about how their product was changing. And business leaders and HR leaders don't have the time to keep track of all of the changes in the marketplace. So where they lack that experience or the knowledge, they will reach out to somebody to help them navigate those changes, what the vendors can do to help remove the emotion, to help put in a more fair and equitable process across the board, and to make sure that that client stays in the driver's seat of the decision. Yeah, it's, it's a really good point. And something I'd love you to speak on is just the importance of maintaining and updating that system along the way. I know I've, I've seen in the past where you put in something and then it just kind of sits there and it gets stale over time and then they want to rip it and replace it. So do you, you know, can you talk a little bit about optimization and just maintenance of, of a system in general? Yeah, when I'm in the selection process, I always try to get my clients to think about what what skills do they need on their team after they make their selection decision. If they don't have a robust team to support it ongoing, that should influence what selection and technology that they decide to put in place. If they don't have the horsepower to actually run some of these some of the systems, it might make more sense to go a different path, one path or another. So starting from the selection with what your resources and skills and capacity are. And then when you get into implementation, documenting 
all of the decisions that you've made, what functionality you're turning on and why you've made decisions. And then before you actually go live, it's something that I also like to try to do before um, you get into a hypercare experience is you make sure that you have an operational rhythm to validate when things are broken, how are you going to fix them? When new functionality is available, who's reviewing those releases against what are your current business needs and does it make sense to put them in place? Who's going to be responsible for that testing and ongoing maintenance, making sure those those things and those practices are in place before you go live. So in your line of work, you you probably do more RFPs than you care to. I I'm curious your thoughts on releasing an RFP versus just doing your own process. And if if somebody does choose to to go to an RFP, you know, what are some I guess tips and tricks that you would share with them? Sure. I think one of the things that an RFP process does for a business is that it helps keep you in the driver's seat. It helps you build clarity of what your system needs to do. It kind of puts some bumpers in place that protect you around any requirements that a technology provider either promises you or doesn't promise you during the selection process. And then the other, I think the other most important piece of this, and I'll underscore this because it leads back to what Jess had asked me earlier, who should be involved, is it actually engages a cross-functional team in that decision-making that builds alignment and support and engagement and effective change management before you even start start implementing and going live with your tools. Um, One of the things that I think is super important about that is at the end of the day, there may not be consensus on the final decision. However, there's usually a ton of clarity around why a particular decision was made and each business owner can represent the why behind why one technology was selected over another, leaving them in a much better position to support it with their employees. Mm-hmm. So as far as the that process goes, uh, and Jess, were you going to ask something? I do, I do have a, a question, but it's a little off topic, so... Go okay. Well, yeah. Let me ask this really quick and then we'll go to that. Um, within the selection process, there's, you know, there's the RFP, but there's a lot of other things going on. What are some of the, the key mistakes maybe that companies are making when they're selecting the other new platform? <laughs> now, um, I think not defining their scope clearly is the number one mistake where, where they feel like they just need to see HR technology, but they're not clear on, do they need workforce management and time management. They're not clear on whether they need recruiting and onboarding. They're not clear about, um, you know, whether they need payroll and payment services. So that not having clear scope is probably the number one mistake that I see. The number two mistake is the taking the yes as an answer from a vendor without really kind of digging into that a little bit more to understand what yes means. So if if a technology provider or partner tells you, yes, we can do that, the follow-up question should also be, how does it do that? What kind of resources does it take to do that? How long does it take to do that particular thing? Uh, What does reporting look like when we do it like that? And, you know, how will this impact other processes? 
I think taking the time to ask the deeper dive questions is really important to that process. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, and, and you talked about, I would call it kind of scope creep in, in terms of, you know, people come to the table, they're like, we need this, this, and this. And then vendor shows up and they're like, well, since we're in it, let's look at what else do they have? And, <laughs> yeah. and I, and I, and I, you know, I've seen it many of times and it's, they get focused on things that weren't originally the focal point. Yeah. And, it, you know, I would imagine that having a consultant, that's part of your job is to keep everybody kind of, you know, inside the lines and focusing Absolutely. on the, yeah. Okay. Yeah, so, and one of the one of the things I do, Mike, that is actually really helpful to address that scope creep, is to clearly define, and I do it by way of a scoring worksheet. What is the criteria? And so there's a section usually around what functionality, uh, you know, is it recruiting? Is it onboarding? Is it time? Kind of putting all of those different functional modules, assigning a weight to them to emphasize which ones are the most important. That way, if I'm wowed by recruiting, but it's not all that important to me, it's not going to over-index my overall rating to skew it towards a vendor that maybe has lousy payroll, but payroll is the most important thing for me. So that scoring worksheet around functionality. The other thing I like to do with the scoring worksheet is also to find the, the su success criteria what are the other factors that matter? Things like price, things like customer service, um, yeah, things like ease or speed of implementation might be on there. Getting really clear about what those other criteria are and giving them a weighting too. That way, again, you're not over emphasizing one point over another. And it's not, it's a little bit of art, it's a little bit of science. And just the act of creating the worksheet helps get the team aligned around what's important and clear about what's important so they don't go off the rails when they're wowed by some functionality that's really cool but not necessarily needed. Yeah, it kind of makes me think about, you know, anyone who's listening who's ever built a house before, you know, and, and you, it's really easy to get distracted by the carrot, you know, of like, oh, we could add these six more outlets here. And then we could, you know, upgrade the lighting or the carpet or the flooring. And then when you start to look at all the things that you added up, you're like, well, A, this is well outside of my budget. And B, like, how important is this to my overall objective that we we said at the beginning of our, you know, search for a new house or building of a new house. Yeah, I love that. I I use the house example a lot too, because you I mean when you're buying technology, these are big investments, and you want to make sure you can do what you need to do today, but you're also building for the future. So while recruiting and onboarding may not be important today, if it will be important in the future. Being able to actually have a technology that can do it natively within their own platform, or if you could bolt on something else and it would work just as well, knowing what your options are there. So you know what kind of house to buy now. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. So I'm going to throw in kind of a couple of random questions here that I actually want to start doing more in our podcast episode. So I hope that you don't mind being a little bit of a guinea pig with us here today, Nikki. Well, I know Mike's going to do some editing. So if it ends up being <laughs> awful, it'll come out, right? <laughs> Excellent. Thanks for being flexible and for taking sure. some risks with us. Absolutely. So, um, I've got two questions, but my first one is, you know, if there is a, a HR leader that is looking to add an HRIS 
analyst or specialist to their staff. They've maybe, again, kind of going back to that smaller company, um, you know, organization size, they've never hired this role before. What advice would you give them in terms of types of skill sets, backgrounds, experiences that they should keep their eyes open? You know, sometimes I think people get a little narrow, get very narrow focused and or specific saying, I need somebody that actually has done HRIS work in the past, but are there other characteristics, skills, previous experiences that you feel bold, bode well in a role like this? Yeah, I, I do actually. And I've helped a number of organizations create their job descriptions for that role as they've built out that, uh, that functional area for their business. I would say, so one of the things I would say not to do is to overemphasize a particular technology. So overemphasizing they need to have ADP experience or they need to have workday experience or they need to have people soft. I think that is a something that I would discourage any organization from doing. I think it's actually more important that you have a skill set of people who understand generically how technology works and how the processes work and how to utilize the support network and the the vendor network of resources available to learn the technology. The technology part is the easy piece to build. You can build that. What's harder to get is somebody who is really good about being creative with their solutions and to help identify what's the best approach for configuring a tool or setting up a system to do what your business needs to do. There's going to be so many times uh, when the business is going to come to the analyst and say, hey, we need to do this. The system needs to be able to accomplish this. And the technology is going to lead you down a path of you've got four different ways you can accomplish that. And having an analyst who can help outline here are the four different options. Here are the pros and cons of each. Here are the implications of that to other areas of our business. Here's how that impacts reporting. Based on all of that, this is my recommendation. And these are the things I would do to mitigate those issues that come with that particular option. I think that is the skill set is that is probably the most important. Okay, great. I love that. And then my last question um, is kind of from the other side. So if we have somebody that's listening, that's like, gosh, I've always really wanted wanted to get into this space of HR, what recommendation would you give to a listener who would like to try to get more experience with um, HR, HRIS and analytics work? Yeah, I, I would say utilize your network. Um, talk to people. Um, I, when I started my career in HR was 20 some odd years ago, and I came into HR out of real estate development. And I knew that HR was where I wanted to be in the end. And I didn't take that decision lightly. So I asked around in the market, who are the best employers who have the most forward thinking kind of HR practices? And, you know, what is the purpose that drives me? And then networked within those organizations Um, to find a role that would be suitable for me as an entry-level HR person. And I I didn't hesitate to to take a step back to end up taking a step forward to do something that I really loved. So I think it's important to assess 
you know, why you want to get into HR, what's important for you and an employer, focus on those employers that could be a really good fit for you, and then start networking within that organization. You know, whether it's, you know, connecting on LinkedIn or following people um, on their blogs and other things that they do, showing up at networking events and um, learning opportunities to get to meet people that are already doing the job. It's like doing the work as if you were already in the job um, can help you land it. Okay, great. Thank you. So you've worked in a lot of processes where they probably didn't make a decision and the value was there. They knew they had a problem. How do you work with the client to hold them accountable or push them a little bit to make like make a decision? And, and my second question is, is it better to make a decision even if you don't know for sure you know, that the system does exactly what you need? And the reason I bring that up is we know we have problems in the business and we have to do something. Is it better to just get started and move forward? Yeah. Um, so I'll take the first part of that question first. I've actually not ever been in a process where the business has not made a decision. However, I have been in a process where the decision was made, but it was a not now kind of a situation where things changed marketably in the organization that meant that they had to defer actually implementing a solution for a period of time. And I've also been involved when the business takes a long time to make that decision. One of the things that I think is really important to do is to understand what are the roadblocks and the things that are getting in the way of making that decision to start clearing the path. So if the concern is one of your key business users, let's say, for instance, it's your payroll person, they've been with your organization for 20 years, and they're just really afraid of moving away from their current provider. And that's really what's getting in the way of that decision. I think it's spending time with that particular person to make sure that they have the opportunity to feel comfortable with the decision. And that could look like a whole lot of different things. It could be getting them more reference calls with the the emerging front runner. It could be getting them in front of um, the business community of local users and giving them access to that and and their information. It, it, It could show up a whole lot of different ways. But I think that, you know, what's really critical is the understanding what are the roadblocks, who are the roadblocks, what specific things would get them to a place to be uh, feel comfortable to making a decision. Then the second half of that, I don't even remember the second half of your question. The second question was, is it better to make a decision even if you're not a hundred percent, but just at like, as a company, we know we have to, we, we need to make these changes. And yeah, even though well, we feel like the, you know, it's, it's not doing everything we need. Would you recommend do it anyways, get started on this, you know, potential digital transformation and start, you know, impacting the business in, in a I way do. that you hope so. no, de- no decision is actually a decision. No decision is you've decided that you're not going to invest in the thing that is going to help you solve the problem that you've identified. 
And I believe in the world of perpetual beta, that you are constantly making incremental steps towards your end. And there's no, there's, there's, it's like building, it's like building a house, Jess. It's the constantly making improvements. You get in there and you live with it and you make tweaks to it as you go. You've got an HRIS analyst who's, you know, keeping track of what functionality is working well, what are the pain points, what are the things that are breaking. You've got a leader that is setting up and establishing um, priorities of the business and the HR function and providing direction to incrementally enable different parts of your technology as you grow into it. Um, it's not a one and done sort of thing, but it's the perpetual beta of getting in, living with it, and constantly uh, making improvements to it. Mm-hmm. For the demo, I, you know, I, I I know that the decision isn't made solely on the demonstration, but I also think it's a very big part of it. And do you think that people put too much emphasis on the demo itself? And talk a little bit more about, you know, how you would, you know, talk to your, or talk your clients through, you know, which areas of the process should they put more emphasis on and not just, you know, what color the buttons are. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I, I actually think I de-emphasize the demo and I, I tell my clients that every opportunity that they have to engage with their, their potential partner is an opportunity to interview them. You know, every interaction that they have reveals something about them. It reveals whether they understand and care about you as a business, whether they've listened to your requirements and are addressing those things. If customer service is a challenge, you know, are they bringing in some of their customer service team to get to know your organization and that they feel comfortable with your um, support processes and products? You know, really every every single opportunity that you're engaging with that that future partner is an opportunity to interview them. The demo is a necessary evil. It is that again, it's an opportunity to see what the functionality could be, but it is not the be all end all of the process. I actually think one of the most important things is the tedious as it is, the listing of business requirements that you submit with your request for proposal and understanding whether the technology can do or not do a particular thing, how they accomplish it, and not necessarily using the the things that they can't do as a reason to kick them out of the process, but rather as an understanding of what the limitations are so you know what trade-offs you're willing to make. Mm -hmm. So I know we have to wrap soon, but I want to ask this last question. Uh, and, and Jess, if you have any as well, jump in. Do you help your clients with the negotiations fa- negotiation phase? And for people that are listening, if they're not using a consultant, can you give some tips and tricks maybe on how to get the best deal when you're buying one of these systems? Because you did mention that price is always a factor and you probably know it better than anybody, You know certain things that they can do to make sure they're getting a fair price. Yeah. So I don't negotiate on behalf of my clients. Um, I do have NDAs with most of the technology providers out there. So it would be inappropriate for me to say you could get better pricing and tell them what you know numbers they should be going for. What I can do is give my clients things and reasons to think about um, before they go into those negotiations. So 
you know, there's a little bit of, I hate the, the term, but horse trading that goes on. So the terms and conditions of your um, master agreements, master service agreements, you might be willing to trade off some of those terms for better pricing, or you might be unwilling to trade off some of the terms and absorb, you know, higher pricing, you know, giving um, clients things to think about if pricing is a factor, um, you know, letting them know, hey, you can ask to pay 50% upfront and 50% later, or you can negotiate on when your payments are due, or you can negotiate on, say you need to get it into next budget cycle versus this budget cycle, you're willing to pay more, but you'll have to wait until next budget year kind of giving them some coaching around some of those opportunities that they might have, but no, I don't actually negotiate those contracts. Mm -hmm. There's, there's a lot of things there that, you know, I, it's interesting that you have NDAs with, with those vendors. I, you know, I, I would have thought that that would have been maybe one of a key piece to why somebody would want to leverage a consultant, but I also completely understand, you know, why there'd be a conflict of, of interest there. Yeah. I mean, I know that there are services out there that you can use that say, here are the vendors and here's what they're pricing. Quite frankly, I don't know how they get those pricing as clear as they do because anybody that's in the industry embedded into the the, the different vendors knows that there's a lot of factors that impact right. the pricing. It's not a, it is not buying, um, you know, a car. It's not, you know, it's, 250 bucks for leather seats and, you know, another 4,000 for the sunroof. There's a lot of different factors that go into that. Your per employee per month pricing, plus the different functional modules and different services that go into that all play a factor into that selection and pricing decision. There are even things like, say you're a big name client and a vendor has been trying to get somebody in a particular category on their, um, their their vendor, their their client page to say, hey, we we have this person or this company as our as one of our clients, their pricing may come down for you because they are willing to do that because they want your name on their on sure. their branded materials. Yeah. Well and, and the terms and conditions, just payment terms. I mean helping them with that I think is is effective too. I, I think people look at the cost of the project as a whole. And yeah. there, there are ways to cut it up in ways that make more sense, um, whether that's to you know finance or the CFO. And, and it may allow you to get a project to prove that you know you maybe didn't think you could right off the bat. Yeah, I uh, my actual my very first technology selection project, I was I had a consultant helping us, but I was the client uh, with mm-hmm. another party, and we said that we wanted to buy. Um, performance management and paper performance technology together. And we were agreed, the co- us, my team and the compensation team said we were going to support each other's decision and paper performance, you know, you needed it to be in the same technology. And we got approved, we made the decision and we got approved. And it's it's interesting, the compensation project got funded before the performance piece because that's the na- nature of where the business was. But even though the performance piece came later, we were able, able to start making that the perpetual beta move, that we're going to start moving into this technology, live with it, get people comfortable with it, and then add functionality as, as the budget allowed for it later. There's so much there. I'd love to go for 
further into it, but I know that we, we are coming up on time. Um, Jess, do you have any other questions? Nothing else. Great. Well, Nikki, thank you so much. It was a pleasure having you on. How can people get a hold of you to uh, maybe just talk about getting into your field or also some tips and tricks on, on you know, finding consultants to help with a project like this? I'd say that Salo is, we call, we call ourselves super connectors and we like to have meaningful experiences where we're matching people and their passions to business problems. So working with somebody like Salo is just a matter of you know, reaching out to me on LinkedIn or one of our BDDs or uh, uh, looking at hellosalo.com for our contact information. Is that what you're looking for, Mike? Yeah, absolutely. I think people will be able to find you. And again, thank you so much. And hopefully we'll have you on here again soon. Thanks, Mike. Thanks, Jess. Thanks, Nikki. Thank you for listening to this episode of What the HR. If you want to hear more episodes like this, be sure to subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or whatever platform you're listening through now. If you enjoyed the podcast, do us a favor and share with your network, your boss, or your CEO. Help us get this podcast in front of anyone who wants to know what HR looks like when done well. Also, if you have any questions for show topics or people you'd like us to interview, please email Mike and I at podcast at tcsherm.org. That's podcast at tcsharm.org. If you want to find out more about Twin City Sherm or our upcoming events, please visit our website at tcsherm.org. You can also follow us on LinkedIn, Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. And finally, if you're not already a member of Twin City Sherm, please use code WHATTHR at checkout to receive $20 off your membership. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next episode.